If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. Welcome to the Bitcoin Basics podcast with your hosts, Faris and Gordon from CoinCompass.com, enabling you to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins. All resources are in the show notes and description, including our disclaimer. Visit BitcoinBasicsPodcast.com to subscribe and discover other free content. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bitcoin Basics Podcast. And I am your host, Ferris, here with Gordon. And it is the 27th of August at uh, 10 o'clock UTC time. Gordon, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, mate. Before we get started, let's do a quick proof recording. The current price of Bitcoin is 11,338 US dollars. And the current block height is 640. 5,546, according to bitcoin.clarkmoody.com. So what are we doing today, Faris? Who are we interviewing? So we just had a fascinating interview with OB, who is the CEO and founder of CoinFloor UK. This is a the first exchange that is um, out of the United Kingdom, uh, first and longest running exchange in the United Kingdom. And we talked... Um, which has been our current theme in these last few episodes about dollar cost averaging, which OB actually has a much better term for it. But we went on to talk about many things about Bitcoin. So this is a 90-minute interview with Obi. But if anyone's new to Bitcoin, Obi is an educator who does an excellent job of unpacking so many things you would have heard about Bitcoin that you probably don't understand. And to be honest, he's, yeah, he's one of the better educators we've come across um, just explaining these intricacies of Bitcoin. Um, that, that's how I found this interview, Gordon. Yeah, what a fascinating, interesting guy. We talked for an hour and a half. We could have gone on for another hour and a half more. But instead of us talking about it, how about we just play the interview? So I just want to say, uh, so this podcast called Bitcoin Basics Podcast, and Gordon and I were both from an educational background. And with this podcast, we're looking at in you know short people who are know of Bitcoin, want to get invested, um, cool. just how to understand the basics without all the heavy lingo. So that's where this podcast is targeting the Bitcoin basics. So our first question to you straight up would be, what is dollar cost averaging? So we'll just ask you if you're explaining it to someone who's never heard of it. How would you explain dollar cost averaging? If that's okay with you? Okay. So um, dollar cost averaging already is quite a complex sounding term. So we changed, we decided to use the phrase auto buying because that really describes easily what it is. So it's making regular, consistent payments um, or purchases of some asset. So in our case, it's, it's Bitcoin, um, the world's best currency in our, in our view and the best store of value. Um, and what this allows you to do is because you're making um, purchases at a consistent point, uh, consistent point of time and, and in a consistent amount, you can smooth out the ups and downs of, of, the, of the market. So one of the biggest concerns that people raise who are coming into Bitcoin is, isn't it really volatile? I don't know if the price is going up tomorrow or down tomorrow. Well, this concern has been something that sort of plagued us for, for the seven years we've been around as a company. Um, and we've looked at many ways of dealing with this. And fin finally, finally we, we settled upon dollar cost averaging because it's, it's the easiest way. It's really easy to understand. I buy $20 
or in, in the UK's case, pounds, a week, a day, a month. Um, it doesn't actually really matter that much if it's somewhere between a, a day, a week, or a month when you do the calculations. So if you just buy a regular amount, say once a week, of 20 pounds or $20, um, and the price goes up, well, you pay a higher price. But then the price goes down, the following week, you pay a lower price. And then, then, then the price stays low, you pay a lower price. Then it goes back up to a medium price, you pay um, somewhere in the middle. Well, if you think about it, the price you're paying becomes the average of all of those prices. So it evens out. And so at that point, you don't really need to care about what the price is on a daily basis anymore because you're just gonna get the average price. And if you look at the average price of Bitcoin over time, it tends to go up. And so basically I only need to think about where do I think Bitcoin's gonna be in the long run. And when you see all the, uh, all the money printing going on, the Fed may be announcing increasing inflation, you can make a call and educate yourself to whether you think Bitcoin over the next five, 10 years is gonna go up. And if you think that, then dollar cost averaging removes the risk of any short-term volatility. That is a fantastic explanation, Obi. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I've got a few follow-up questions, but Gordon, I'm going to let you take it from here. Okay. Um, yeah, great explanation, uh, Obi. Thanks for that. And, and once again, thanks for coming on to the podcast. We, we, we really appreciate it. Um, I'll get into a DCA question in a minute, but... What uh, actually interested me in you and, and CoinFloor was that um, going onto your website, you're Bitcoin only. So for us, yeah. that's a huge tick. You delisted Ethereum, which is a huge tick for me. Uh, you had uh, DCA auto buy as well. And um, especially you had um, like proof of reserves or I think you call it proof of custody audits and lots of stuff. Super yeah. impressive, um, gold star standard. But what I was impressed with most on your website is actually the Bitcoin educational section. Yep. That is absolutely fantastic. And yep. it's actually a new source that I can now point to my friends and family and even on this podcast, a, a, a few in-jokes and a few, a few funnies here and there, which are a few subtle jokes, which I got as well. Yep. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. So I want to congratulate you on that. And I'll definitely put that link into the show notes. So um, thank you. Do, do you uh, want to go into, say, CoinFloor and, and why sh someone shouldn't say, you know, they got $10,000 transferred to Coinbase and accidentally buy Bitcoin Cash instead of Bitcoin and What's the... Uh... Well, yeah, I'm one of... So there's a lot there. And thank you very much for your comments. But um, there are people who have been in the cryptocurrency space for a while. And many of them are, are Bitcoiners. And you can look at other cryptocurrencies, but there are arguments for why many people think that, especially for new people entering the market, Bitcoin is the gold standard. It's a digital gold um, and, and that's a very good way of thinking about it. It's the best form of storing value, has that potential to be that best form of storing value the world has ever seen. Um, now, there are many other cryptocurrencies which are um, more speculative, um, but if you, if you want to just get into this market and have, uh, from a cryptocurrency point of view, a low risk way of entering the market, really Bitcoin is the only option. Now, the problem is you, and probably many people who are the more experienced users of viewers of your um, podcast will, re will um, relate to, is you're, you're the Bitcoin guy or the Bitcoin gal. 
And um, for most for for most of the time, people probably don't want to talk to you too much because you just go on about Bitcoin at every dinner party, every every meeting, every pub, every pub convention, whatever it is. But then now and again, people finally um, start down the road to Bitcoin hegemony, and and they and they feel like they want to learn about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, and they come back to you and they say, hey, you know, you're the Bitcoin guy or the Bitcoin gal. Could you tell me a little bit about this? And you tell them about this, how it's a great store of value, why it's um, the only asset in existence that we can programmatically know, mathematically will have no inflation. Um, and that's a very valuable thing. Um, and they finally go, okay, I get it. Um, I'd like to buy some of this stuff. And you recommend an exchange. And they go off and you see them a week later and, and they say, thanks very much. I, I got some of that cryptocurrency stuff. And so did you get some Bitcoin? No, no, no. There was this Wibble coin and it was 0.1p and was being promoted at the time. And I got that instead. And, and then uh, you can hear around the world, all these Bitcoiners sort of doing a face palm. Like, no, they, we, 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 we um, directed them on the right path and they ended up somewhere else. Or they get to the site and there's this plethora of options and it's just too complex too confusing and they're turned away. That's another thing that happens. I saw it, but it was just too much for me. I didn't have the time. So we decided to buck the trend and create an offering from beginning to end, which was designed to be an easy, as safe as possible and as easy as possible on-ramp to, to cryptocurrency, which for us meant that it had to be Bitcoin only. Um, that was the first thing. And second, it had to have this very, very strong emphasis on education because you wanted people to sign up as easily as possible. So we actually allow people to sign up without proof of ID for, um, without, there's a sort of a, uh, there is a KYC, but it's a, that's in knowing your customer, but a, we have a limited level of KYC as much as we can do within regulation for a small amount. So we can get the on-ramping as easy as possible. Um, and the second thing we do is only offer for retail users um, dollar cost averaging or auto buying, because that is the safest way to buy into any. Uh, and it's not just for Bitcoin, by the way. It's the same for the stock market. If you did want to trade in the stock market, a lot of people would suggest if you if you don't want to complicate things, choose an index of stocks that you think are reliable and buy a regular amount consistently. That's, that's, a, that's a generally the safest way to do it, to invest in any volatile asset. And so we offered auto buy, we offered Bitcoin only, and we offered easy on-ramp. But these things get you in and get started. But at that point, you're starting a journey. The most important thing you need to do is change your philosophy. And, and, you guys are educators by background, so you'll understand that education is this lifelong journey. And that's what's one of the most exciting things about being in this industry. It's not just the technology, but the whole new philosophy around money, around thinking about personal privacy, uh, about self-custody, self-sovereignty, and all of these mindsets, which if more people had them, I believe, and many others will believe, would lead to a much more egalitarian, meritocratic, um, um, more safe world because people will be able to question information that comes to them. Don't just trust, but verify that that phrase is not just a phrase for Bitcoin. That phrase should be, you know, if we see some of the things happening in certain elections around the world right now and so much misinformation, people need new 
tools to be able to take that information in and critically analyze it to work out um, what's right and what's wrong in their own in their own um, um, their own rule set and in their own mind. Thanks, Obi. I can't tell you how encouraging it is to hear the easy on ramps and the fact that you're only providing for Bitcoin because. Like you said, I was the Bitcoin guy in a little village that I live in in New Zealand. Everyone was coming up to me, asking me about it. And I helped a few people buy Bitcoin at the time through, I think it was Zappo and Bitstamp. Yeah. And this one friend of mine I helped and yeah, she had to go into the bank with an EFT um, with um, international, um, sorry, international SWIFT payment. She filled it out. So I helped her do it. She went into the bank. This was after the whole process of, um, you know, verifying her account and everything. And at that, the bank teller said, oh, this is a bank in Cyprus. I don't think you should do this. And it was just too much for her. And she walked away. And Bitcoin was sub 3000 at the time. Yep. And, and I, yeah, I found that quite often people go, oh, it's just too hard. And I'll get the, you know, I don't have the RAM for it. I'll get back to it. And then, of course, they miss out and they're waiting for it. And, and then they think, oh, I've missed the boat on Bitcoin. It's too expensive now. So this is why I love what you guys have done. And, you know, what Gordon was saying is just this easy on-ramp put in, and this is what I say to people, they, how much should I invest? And well, just invest what you're willing to lose, like you know, any other asset class. So mm. I can't, I can't yeah. thank you enough for providing this service because it's just, yeah, it's, it'll make our lives so much easier when we're explaining this to people. Yeah, I, I think, um, and there are dollar cost averaging apps from around the world uh, in different countries. I and mean, at some point we'll be looking at expanding as well beyond the UK. Um, and some of them are really great products. Um, so I encourage people, this is not about everybody go to CoinFloor. This is about um, educating people in the safest way to invest in, in crypto assets, which is Bitcoin and, and dollar cost averaging or auto buying. Um, and then with, a, with, a, with a, um, a side helping, a generous side helping of constant education about why is Bitcoin needed? Because you need to educate yourself about any investment so that you mm-hmm. make the investment, not just initially, maybe because there's people you trust, maybe you want to make a certain amount, but after a while you should want to educate yourself about that investment and understand what is it doing? Why is this technology um, interesting? So that you feel confident that that investment will go up over the long term. And what do you feel are still some misconceptions about Bitcoin that new customers are coming to? Yeah, so, I mean, there are a few. Um, so one, uh, one of the biggest, um, and actually we're going to have a, a fun fun um, competition to try and um, um, to um, get people to understand that this is not the case. But one of the biggest is is the fact that people feel that they have to buy a whole Bitcoin. Um, actually, especially when people are coming in new. Um, so, um, and that's obviously not the case. You can buy, um, in fact, when Bitcoin was created, it had two units. It had the main unit and it had the, and it had the fractional unit of Bitcoin. And the fractional unit is the Satoshi. So with, with um, pounds and dollars, with, with dollars, it's um, the, the dollar is the, is the unit and then this fractional unit is the cent. And with pounds, it's the pounds and the pennies. Well, the, the fractional unit for Bitcoin is the Satoshi. And um, the new user coming in doesn't yet um, know that 
um, the Satoshi, uh, the, has, the awareness of the Satoshi isn't as strong as it should be. So one Satoshi, unlike a pound where one penny is one, um, is, is one hundredth of, of a pound or one cent is one hundredth of a dollar, one um, Satoshi was one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. And what this tells you is that um, Bitcoins in the long run were never intended for people to own, uh, own whole Bitcoins in 10, 20 years time, but they will own hundreds of, um, but it is intended for them to own hundreds of Satoshis. And so Satoshi really is the unit that people um, over time should be thinking about. And we're sp spending a lot of time thinking about that. Um, and we, we want to do a nice uh, fun competition um, to help people. And there's a phrase called stack sats. So this is a nice, interesting um, alliteration um, to, to basically explain double, dollar cost averaging, where you're constantly stacking on a weekly, daily basis your Satoshis. Um, so that's, that's one very common thing. And so, so it's very clear for people, it's very important for people to understand that Bitcoin is a name for the technology, but actually increasingly people will use the actual original unit of Bitcoin, the Satoshi, to describe it. Which is also named by after its after its um, inventor Satoshi Nakamoto, the anonymous inventor. Um, another thing that is um, commonly leveled at Bitcoin is that no one's using it to for transactions or to buy things and so on. Now we believe the number one use case for Bitcoin um, is a store of value, and people should use it as a store of value. Um, However, there are people using it to transact and buy things as well. And in fact, the number of transactions, if we look at it, ignoring um, exchange transactions happening on the Bitcoin blockchain on a, on a daily, weekly or monthly basis, it has already eclipsed that of PayPal, PayPal or Venmo, etc. So, yes, it's not the same as the number of transactions that are happening on, in US dollars worldwide but it's already at a significant level. These are billion dollar companies. And that's, and that's just a side part of Bitcoin right now compared to its use case as a store of value. And that's only going to increase as well. Um, so those are just a couple of, 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 um, of the misconceptions that have been, that is worth um, uh, correcting. And I like the way that not only Bitcoin only, and you mentioned the Satoshi, I, I think that point can't be underestimated because I know two friends now who have gone to well, one was Coinbase, one was somewhere else, and they, you know, one Bitcoin is too expensive. So they buy XRP, they buy Bitcoin Cash, they buy all these other coins because of that unit price. Yeah. You know, one Bitcoin is 11,000. So that, that point actually can't be, can't be underestimated. So I think that's really good of you to, to be Bitcoin only. Um, and also, uh, <laughs> you may disagree with this. Um, I, th I think, uh, I think, I, I can definitely, obviously, I think there are many use cases for Bitcoin because this is a Bitcoin basics podcast, but I think it's insane for people to be buying coffee and be buying things with Bitcoin because it's like, unless I don't have any money left, if I've run out of all my fiat, um, why on earth would you want to spend Bitcoin right now? Maybe in 50 years time when it's sort of, you know, uh, the, the, the common denominator in terms of money. Uh, to me, it seems insane that uh, you'd buy these these items that could, you know, be a hundred thousand dollar coffee in the future. Oh, um, um, so I first got into Bitcoin. Everybody says when they first got into Bitcoin, so it doesn't really matter. But the point is, um, don't worry about the date. But I, um, 
remember uh, at the time a friend bought a scarf for seven Bitcoin. And it was a really lovely scarf. It was a lovely scarf, you know. Um, probably at the time worth maybe up to $100, you know. It was like a really nice quality, um, you know, cashmere um, scarf. But I think, um, you know, he very much regrets not, not keeping the seven Bitcoin and buying it with the real, as it's known, unfortunately, to, to use a, a sort of slightly crude term, shitcoin. The real shitcoins are pounds, dollars and euros because they, they are, abs- they are pro- um, designed to be inflationary and they go down in value over time. Um, and so once someone does that, they and they use it to buy something that's really actually not very needed for them um um so basically a an elective purchase like a cup of coffee or a scarf with bitcoin and they see the price go up they they it will be a while before they do that again basically they learn their lesson and i've learned that lesson i've i've gone to the pub back in you know five six seven years ago and bought some bought a round with bitcoin and then i thought "Mm, probably not something I'll do in future. So I agree, you've got two assets. One is gonna just be by the rules of inflation, go up in value over time or relative to everything else go up in value. And the other one's gonna go down in value. Which one do you spend first? You're going to spend the thing that's going down in value. And you'll only stop spending that when you run out of the thing that goes down in value. Now, given that um, the thing that goes down in value is is being printed and it has an infinite supply it will never run out so by that argument in the normal case it it, there's very little incentive to spend the bitcoin however there are certain items that you can only buy with bitcoin or you need to access capital and you you are quite long bitcoin you just don't have um, other sources of of fiat to have uh, other sources of um, value to to have access to then you have no other options. You have to convert some of your Bitcoin or you have to you spend your Bitcoin in that scenario. And what I'm saying, even in those edge cases, which are not the normal case of store of value, and as I'm saying, it's just a side, it's just an edge case. It's already doing more volume than, uh, than PayPal or Venmo in the cases where people have to, they have no other option and they don't want to spend it and they're spending it. So, so you, the point is you can spend it, but you'll only spend it when you literally have no other option. Um, at some point yeah. down the line, when most people have Bitcoin, its price will, uh, the theory is its price will stabilize and the growth in price will be much slower. And at which, which point from year to year, you don't really expect the price mm-hmm. to increase that much. Then I think mm-hmm. people are be more comfortable spending in Bitcoin. And that, that could be 10 years, it could be 50 years, it could be, it doesn't matter. But there will always be um, a, a series of people who just have no option and they have to spend Bitcoin. They're, they're, for example, they live in a country where, um, they, where PayPal doesn't work or operate and they, they, have, they want to buy something um, internationally. They need it. It's a piece of machinery for, for uh, a farm and the custom company accepts PayPal or, or Bitcoin and they can't use PayPal in their country or the person wants to see an actual bearer asset, so because they, they don't trust sending it to, to Nigeria or, or Ghana or whatever it may be, 
And so they can pay with Bitcoin because the person then doesn't need to trust the person. They trust the Bitcoin. The Bitcoin has value. You've given it to me. So I will now send you the item. In that scenario, I will spend Bitcoin. And I'll probably immediately buy Bitcoin again to cover my position. But I'm using the Bitcoin because I have no other option. The merchant is not willing to accept anything else from me. Yeah, that, that's a point, OB, thank you, that we really relate to here because we do run like these 90-minute, two-hour um, workshops just explaining Bitcoin. And ha- more than half the workshop is actually explaining the current financial system that we're under. So explaining, as you just mentioned, Gresham's Law, um, even explaining how global reserve currencies work, um, you know, the, how we went off the gold standard in 1971. These are so many things yep. that we understand. And we believe that, yeah, if you want to understand, really want to understand the um, geopolitical, economic, you know, fractional reserve financial system we live in now, will finally grasp that. Then they actually have an appreciation for Bitcoin to me based simply on, as you just mentioned, the law of demand. As we're seeing now, there is no end of supply to fiat currency. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it was really interesting um, uh, a few months ago, it just dawned on me that next year, 1920 and 2021, which will also be 21 for 21 million Bitcoin, is going to be significant for a lot of reasons. But next year, um, modern fiat, i.e. the fiat that's in everybody's pockets, world reserve currency in USD, um, euro, pounds, etc., is going to be 50 years old. It's only going to be 50 years old next year. Also next year, Bitcoin is going to be 12 and a half years old. So it's going to be one quarter of the age of fiat. So everybody says Bitcoin has not been around for a long time, but fiat's only been around for four years, four times longer from next year onwards. It's going to be, and so it's really interesting to put it in perspective that this currency that everybody says is, is, is um, the main currency of the world and has been around for ages, is only from next year will only have been around for four times longer than Bitcoin has been around. And so, yeah, yeah and it's, really it's still an experiment as well. So first time in history, we've had every single um, currency in the world mm. not pegged to any form of commodity. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and not pegged to, well, it's, it, it, it was still an inflationary asset, but um, it was the lowest inflationary asset that mm. we'd had up until the existence of Bitcoin in the uh, gold. Yeah. And so, yeah. Bit, yeah. And, and we've seen, if you look at all the metrics of what's happened, uh, you know, there are some sites that go through this with um, titles, which may be not safe for, for a podcast, um, but that go through what, what, what the blazes happened in, in 1971, for example. Um, that, that's a great website, by the way. Yeah. I'll link the WTF 1971. Yeah. WTF happened in 1971. Yeah. And, um, if you just it's if you don't have to you don't even have to read read the read um or research numbers just look at the graphs and you can just see mm. visually something happened in 1971 and it's yeah. um and something very drastic and it doesn't seem to be very good for for most people if you look at it in any way of measuring it i'm sure again some people it was incredibly effective and incredibly powerful it, it it allowed the um, movement of wealth into the hands of a privileged few at a rate that we've never, that's been unprecedented. And um, obviously if you're the privileged few 
who also tend to control mass media and so on, you have a vested interest in saying that's a great thing and it should continue. But um, now um, something also very interesting happened um, 30 years ago with the invention of the internet or, or the white, well, the internet was invented more than 30 years ago, but widespread use. I remember um, back in um, um, university where I saw um, most in the, in the early nineties where I saw Mozilla um, at that point, it was, um, it was um, actually it was before Mozilla. It was uh, um, mosaic. mosaic. Yes. Uh, NCSA mosaic, um, NCSA mosaic in our, our um, university computers. Um, but at that point we could still see this was going to be amazing because now anybody anywhere in the world can access information very soon afterwards, anybody, anywhere in the world could publish information. And then you went 10 years later and you saw Twitter. And luckily I was pretty early on Twitter, which is why I have Obi on Twitter. Um, and which is, uh, you know, I really enjoy that um, um, name. And again, you can see now um, you could broadcast to the world any thought you wanted. And, and we've democratized and decentralized um, access to information and access to the mechanisms to share information. And that I think is, is interesting. And, and it's going to be potentially the key mechanism, things like this, for us to be able to share the most powerful asset that we have that I would say is as powerful as a strong store of value, which is information, access to information and the ability to share information. And so, yeah, it's going to be an, an exciting few. It's going to be an exciting decade. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I promise I won't go down a rabbit hole, but yeah. My, go my down a rabbit hole. Just, just do it. Let's do it. <laughs> no, no my, my friends and family are sick of me. Like every Bitcoin guy talking about this and that, but it's like, it, it really is more than money because when you think about it, it's something that can't be censored. You know, your, your Facebook account, your bank account, um, pretty much everything. I mean, look at what's happening in China with yeah. WeChat. Um, it's not just your social media account being censored. It's actually your access to finances. You can't travel. You can't get on a train. You can't do this, can't do that. And in the West, we're kind of like, well, that's that's China. That's way off, you know, da-da-da. And it's like these things are coming. And, you know, they're talking about the U.S. having a digital dollar and the um, central bank having basically the ability to um, create bank accounts for its citizens and hand out unemployment money. And it's like, well, that money has an expiry on it. You can spend it within three, four weeks you have to spend on this if you're a bad citizen or you do something wrong or you support the wrong political party or whatever imagine your bank account being um disabled or deactivated Um, yeah so so it it really is freedom when when you talk about bitcoin so but this is actually a point i've i've actually been thinking about this more and more and bitcoin is the first we're taking value and we are decentralizing um it so it's not centralized in terms of control um, we're making it open so anybody can access it and we're making it privacy preserving so that you can have freedom to store and transfer your value without other people um, being able to make a view of you, uh, take a view of you because of your actions. So you, so you maintain your privacy. But I think increasingly um, we've been sort of asleep at the wheel when it comes to information because and as a result, information has, and forget state actors, you have to worry about the fangs, Facebook, Apple, 
um, Amazon, um, Netflix, and Google, and others like this, they have now levels of access of, to your information which are unprecedented. And if you think about it, if you look at what's happening in the world, um, there are digital assets and physical assets. And not even taking into account cryptocurrencies and so on, digital assets could be software um, um, characters in your game or whatever that you play or digital art, music, video. Um, and then physical assets, are chairs, tables, cars. More and more value is being attributed by us as human beings because we attribute value to digital assets. And if you extrapolate over time, most value will be digital in nature. We will be spending our time interacting online. We, we need less and less stuff in physical world. Automation is reducing the cost of physical stuff, but virtual stuff like music, videos, and so on, experiences will continue to increase in value. But all of these things are trapped in a number of completely centralized, autocratic um, um, panopticons, where basically the owners of them, and by a panopticon is a, is a place where um, um, the owners of, of that, um, uh, it's a, it was originally a form of um, jail, in fact. The, one, of, one of the most famous was on Millbank just before they sent people off to, the, to Australia, you know, and so on. Um, um, and it was, it was a form of prison where the prison guards could see you 24-7. You, you couldn't go to the toilet. You couldn't sleep without being having constantly being surveilled. Well, if you're on Facebook, Facebook, Facebook is a panopticon for Facebook, the company. They can see, hear, and read every single thing any person um, talks about. They can control what you can say. They can ban you from, from your access or who you can talk to. And they can limit what you can do. And that's, and that's the rules of that world. And it's the same for Google. And it's the same for Amazon. It's the same for Facebook. So if you consider these as countries, they are the most draconian authoritarian countries you can imagine. And we're spending more and more of our time there. Um, so if it gets to the point where we literally spend all of our time there, we may have won the battle of, of, of value, but lost the battle, of, or lost the war of information. So I think it's going to be increasingly, and you're starting to see it, there's going to increasingly going to be people realizing that we're giving away way too much in terms of access to our information, way too much in terms of access. Um, we're putting too little importance on privacy and so on. Mm-hmm. And you'll start, hope, I'm seeing some hopeful signs we're starting to see it. If you look at Facebook recently announced that for their Oculus VR headset, they're creating this new um, um, world called Facebook Horizon, which is going to be like um, Ready Players One's Oasis, where you can you can they expect people to work there, go to school there, study, um, do everything in this world, and it's, they're announcing it um, later this year because they follow a lot of VR stuff as well. Um, and then they announced, um, even though Lucky Palmer, the inventor of the Oculus um, as a Kickstarter project, when he sold it to Facebook, confirmed that. Facebook will never mandate a Facebook account for an Oculus user. Um, last week, they made the announcement that they're going to mandate Facebook accounts for, for mm-hmm. Oculus users. And there was an outcry across the VR community against that. Now, people are probably still going to sort of um, not like it, but lump it. Um, but the fact that there was an outcry shows that people are starting to realize that we are losing a lot of rights 
in this new digital sort of digital worlds that we're entering into. And so I think we're going to need a similar set of technologies, and there are some that exist, to provide decentralized versions of these. For example, Zoom is a great app, but there's Jitsi that allows you to do the same thing, but it's completely peer-to-peer. Um, Facebook Horizons would be pretty cool, but you have Mozilla Hubs, which is a completely decentralized alternative. And there are decentralized databases that are coming out that don't require tokens, you know, don't require cryptocurrencies. You don't need a cryptocurrency to make a decentralized database. Mm. Um, and there are decentralized versions of IM social networks and so on. They're all buggy. They're all not as smooth and as, and as, and as slick as the centralized versions right now. But give it five years, give it 10 years, mm. they will be. And we need to also educate people about starting to use these services over the coming years. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. I know, I know Gordon is chopping at the bit to talk about Jitsi because he's moved, moved us onto it personally and a few other oh, things. Uh, great. But, um, but I found very interesting that you mentioned that Facebook, um, Apple, Google are um, comparing them to countries because I recently heard a theologian actually say they are the new empires. Of course. They are. No, look, carry on. Yeah, sorry, this is coming from a theologian, someone who's studying you know, anthropology oh, and theology. Oh, oh, a theologian. Yeah, oh. That, yeah, a theologian described these as a new empires today because he says uh, Facebook has more participants than any one religion. Yeah, they, uh, what is it? Are they at two billion now? Are they, are they, uh, accounts, apparently? They're definitely over a billion. I think they hit two billion recently. Um, I'm not one of them. Yeah, but you have to, if you think about it, what, what is a country? It's a group of people. Um, we just assume that they are connected by fit, being on the same physical plot of land. But Richie, but in, in um, cyberspace, the concept of being in the same physical location loses meaning, but you can be in the same virtual location. And so if you're all, and so every time you log on to some sort of social network, you are effectively um, part of, you are, you are entering or teleport. If you think about it, you're teleporting. Every time I switch my screen to the Twitter screen, I'm teleporting into Twitterland. And then when I go to facebook.com, I'm teleporting over instant, no hyperloop, no, no SpaceX, no, 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 nothing else. You're just, you're teleporting to Facebookland. And when I go into Gmail, I'm now in Google land. And when I'm using Bitcoin to interact with other Bitcoiners, I'm in Bitcoin land. Effectively, Bitcoin is another community of people. And if we're interacting, because in, in, in a land, what do you do? You, you spend time there, i.e. you live there, and the time could be, you spend your attention and time there. And you also transact with other people there. And that's what creates some sort of state or group. And so if you think about these digital properties in that way then you start realizing well if i was going to put facebook into some sort of real world context it's it looks north korea looks pretty good to me you know compared to compared to facebook and it's and obviously uh, mark zuckerberg um is trying to put the uh, give the impression that he's a benevolent dictator i'm not going to suggest that he is or he isn't but he is, at the end of the day, a dictator with an incredible amount of power. And if you've read things like, you know, 1984, you know, power corrupts, 
but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the level of power that, that um, the CEO of a major, social, um, a major technology company that has a large social network element to it, or has uh, the ability to control and access and view um, um, a large number of customers' details, is just immense. Eventually, just by just, you'd have to believe that this is like the 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 ring of Saruman multiplied by a million. You know, from the Lord of the Rings. This is going to turn you into something that's far worse than the Golem, um, uh, very very quickly. And so the only way around it is to have something that's decentralized, so that the thing that's running the country is a software, is a piece of software. I studied in in um university computer science and cognitive science so i.e ai at that time was just computer science with cognitive science so i was trying to build our new robot overlords and um and i for one welcome them when they come but um effectively um i would prefer the idea of this um completely meritocratic consistent open piece of software following a very simple set of rules to be the thing that is governing the system because it has no ability to do anything other than what we say. And if we want to change what it does in the case of Bitcoin, everybody has to basically, it's a majoritism. So it's not democracy. Bitcoin is not a democracy. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a majority, it's, it's a hyper-majoritism or super-majoritism, i.e. almost everyone has to agree to a change before the change happens. Um, and I think that that's probably, this is something that's very, very new because it required networks and computers and so on to have a system that required, that would work in that way. It would just logistically was impossible in the physical world without up until now to be able to have a decision where everybody has to vote. And unless you get 100%, it doesn't happen, you know, and, and that's what we have. And that's a completely new form of governance. Uh, that's I, I couldn't agree with you more, Roby, to be honest. Um, I, I'm all about decentralizing all the things. I'm, I'm both a hypocrite and also a pragmatist. Like, for example, uh, I use Jitsi all the time, but it's like for, for podcasts that are public and online, it has good codecs. You know, the video and the audio sounds, sounds better. So it's like, okay. But I know that, you know, decentralized peer-to-peer -peer application is better for my security and privacy. So it's step by step. the problem it's that journey. I have... It's a journey. And also it's about choice. If you, if you can move your information in and out and you can decide what you give to, to make available, then that's, that's okay. Because I think actually when we say decentralized, it still means there's a number of central hubs. So, yeah. and that's, and that's, I the only difference between um, the, the saving grace for the FANG versus a nation state. A nation state could choose to prevent you from leaving that state. Right now, if, I, if you were in the US citizen, it used to cost a few hundred dollars to renounce your citizenship. Um, lots of people started to renounce their citizenship. They increased the price by a tenfold to a few thousand dollars to renounce your citizenship. And I think you would expect to see potentially um, see that price increase and they regularly refuse to allow people to renounce their citizenship. You have to actually have an interview and ask and, and ask for permission to no longer be a citizen. So um, in, in Facebook right now, as of at, at this point in time, you, there, you can choose to not be a Facebook user and Facebook can't force you to not be a user. Um, you know, if we don't continue to um, manage and 
pay attention to our, our, our rights in terms of, our, and these are, these are considered universal international civil rights around like rights to freedom of speech, privacy, etc. If we don't keep paying attention to those, sometime down the line, maybe 10, 20 years, you could start seeing that you are mandated that you must have an account with X book or, or, or Google or whoever it may be. And, and that, at that point, they then become like nation states. And you have to ask for permission to no longer have that account. That's actually why I still have a Facebook account. I have absolutely nothing on it whatsoever. No timeline, no pictures, no nothing. But it's like, yeah, I've got a Facebook account. Uh, I'm not suspicious. Uh, let me through immigration, please. Um, the, the problem that I have with decentralization, actually, it's not my problem with decentralization because I'm, I'm all for that. And, and more so free and open yep. source um, is everyone just wants to tokenize everything. So yep. we talked about Jitsi and it's like Jitsi is a perfect example. It's a peer to peer application. You go to a website, you download it, you know, use it without a central, it doesn't need mm -hmm. a token, but, but you're a gamer, I'm a gamer. And especially in this space, in this blockchain space, and I want to go into why you uh, delisted Ethereum in a second. Are you not frustrated with this whole blockchain, everything tokenize everything? Yeah. Uh... Um, I mean, I, I, I've gone through various, various phases with this. Um, my view is that, um, a lot of people in this space, um, outside of Bitcoin, um, and, uh, and in, and obviously I think a lot of people in Bitcoin have good intentions and, um, they are trying to, um, they also believe in the, the vision of a decentralized world. Um, I uh, have always struggled with um, the question of, please show me a use case where you actually need a token for it. And so that's, that's probably one of my first questions where, and so when I see decentralized databases like GUN, which are this decentralized graph database, no token required, lots of um, open source community traction, really, really interesting project. Uh, and, it's, and it's completely decentralized. Um, I think, well, that didn't need a token and that's doing pretty well. When I see Jitsi, that's doing well. Again, it's really early it's, 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 and it's open source. The, the downside of decentralized systems is that they tend to develop slower than centralized ones. That's one of, but they eventually get there. And when they do get there, they tend to take over. You can, an example, a case, you know, you can see with Linux, it's decentralized, but it's the most popular um, operating system on the planet. Almost every mobile phone uses um, Linux and so on and so forth. And that has a benevolent <laughs> dictator. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, but, but no, there are multiple sub um, implementations of, of Linux as well. Oh, no, I, I use Linux, I love it. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, continue, uh, keep going. So, yeah, I might have lost my track there. Hopefully I haven't, but uh, um, I think I've lost my track now. So uh, I was going to be saying something really profound and we've lost it. Doesn't it? <laughs> no, really. I'm sorry about that. Nah, no worries. Um, so one question we like to ask, and, and this goes back to the delisting de of Ethereum, like, like why Bitcoin? So someone's sort of, um, and, and CoinFlaws in the UK, you've got someone with a UK bank account. They're thinking of buying some yeah. Bitcoin why should they just stick with Bitcoin and not Ethereum XRP or insert 50,000 other altcoins? Yeah. So, um, we, um, have 
And other exchanges say they do this as well, but we have four criteria for which we use to decide whether we list the cryptocurrency or not. So we objectively measured every cryptocurrency against us, including Bitcoin. And the first criteria is, is this token or cryptocurrency um, at its core trying to be a store of value type currency? And the reason why that's important to them is because if you're investing, you want to invest in things that have value and will in, and continue to um, increase in value. Because your, your, your number one decision to invest is because you want to get a return. Um, and you'll be surprised. There's a few currencies that say the value of the currency doesn't matter. It's, just a, it's effectively just a carrier for some other information. And when uh, Ethereum started, um, it, it made this great play of the fact that it's not really about money. It's just about, it's about gas for, for effectively, it's a fuel for um, computing. Um, and so it failed, based, and that's why we didn't. We were one of the last to list Ethereum. We only actually listed it for less than a year, by the way, um, um, because all the way up to 2018, um, their their argument was that we're not actually um, a money. We're all about fuel, and that's why it's called ether and gas, etc. Um, and then there was this rallying cry um, uh, across Ethereum for this. Um, this phrase that Ethereum is money, ETH is money. And, and, they, and effectively the community changed its view and said, actually, no, we are also a money now. We are, we're no longer denying the money use case. So, so then we considered, started to consider it then because it immediately lost. If you don't consider yourself a money, then why are we listing you? Because we're, we're, we're an exchange, so like an FX exchange, one money with another. If you don't consider you a money, then then, then you're, you're not for us. Um, you do that on a stock exchange or something like that, or a commodities exchange, not, a, not an FX exchange. Then the other three are simpler. One, regulatory clarity. Um, we're in the UK. It's, uh, there are strong regulations here, etc. And Europe is, as well, if we expand, we're likely to expand to Europe. Again, there's going to be similar um, equivalent regulations, at least until the end of this year. Um, and so we know they're equivalent there. So if the regulators are not clear on the currency or not comfortable with it, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't list it as well. So there's some really interesting currencies out there like Monero, but we know that regulators are not comfortable with those, so, so we don't list them. And, and they do aim, aim to be a money as well, et cetera. Um, and um, we know that the regulators are comfortable with Bitcoin and they've, they've actually name that they generally avoid naming currencies as examples, but they are comfortable with naming Bitcoin as an example of currency they're comfortable with. And they have also recently said Ethereum is one they've also named as well. But most other currencies they're not willing to name and many of them, you know, are they, are they actually um, securities or they're not? There's a lot, a lot of the ICO tokens fall into this gray area where I think um, um, regulators would be uncomfortable with it. So that excluded probably 99% alone. And then the final two were community support and technical, mature, te technical maturity. Now, community support, Bitcoin has an incredibly strong community. But to be fair, Ethereum also has a strong community. If you list the other cryptocurrencies, only probably uh, maybe a couple of dozen have relatively strong communities. The rest don't really. 
Um, but as I said, the first two, um, the, the, the regulatory clarity one, many of the ICOs leave out on as well. And then finally, there's the technical maturity. Now, this is where most cryptocurrencies fail for us because they're, they're very much still at the um, very early stages, unproven, lots of technical risk. And, we, and, and, as, and as such, if you want to try and um, buy some to experiment with, this new idea, hey, go ahead and experiment. But if you want to store a lot of value in them, then we think that that's sort of irresponsible to position that this is a thing to store a lot of value when the currency has only existed like for a couple of weeks and so on. It's, it's so, so at most fail for that. Now, after a few years and with a lot of technical support um, and, and with now this sort of rallying cloud that ETH is money, we came to the conclusion at the end of 2018 that Ethereum was just about um, technically mature enough and they now were claiming that it was money, so we'd list it. And we listed at the beginning of 2019. Then six months later, Vitalik Buterin and a number of other uh, um, leading developers of Ethereum basically stated that Ethereum is no longer good enough and um, it can't scale and we now need to make Ethereum 2. And Ethereum 2 is not just Ethereum, but with a few tweaks. It's a completely new cryptocurrency. The only thing it has in relation to Ethereum is the name. That's it. Uh, other than that, everything else is completely different. It's like, it's like effectively starting with a Skoda and then checking the actually starting with a BMX bike and then changing it to us and then saying, we're going to create this SpaceX rocket, but we're going to call it BMX two. It's, 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 it's completely different. Now they may try to create a SpaceX rocket. It hasn't been created and maybe in three, four, five years time, it's going to be created. And then two or three years, years later, it won't have had any issues and it's running reliably and supported at that point. I may consider listing Ethereum 2 in that four, five, six, seven years time when it's proven itself and it's, and it's got strong traction and it hasn't crashed or, or lost people money or so on. And it actually launches, which I think is probably in the sort of sub 1% chance of launching, but that's a separate, for various technical reasons, I'm not sure it'll ever launch. But if it does launch and it's stable, we'll consider listing it. But if you have, as the founder of Ethereum and as one of the lead developers said that Ethereum is not good enough, then objectively it's not good enough. I cannot, as an exchange, argue against the founder of the currency. And so at that point, we had to, it became clear we had to delist it because it fails. Ethereum that exists now is, no long, is not technically mature. We have a very objective way of showing that because here is him saying it. And therefore, we had, to de we had to delist it. And so less than a year after listing it, we delisted it because it now failed from a technical maturity point of view. And it was as simple as that. Let's be clear. Even Bitcoin just about makes the four-point grade, if we're being objective. It's just technically mature enough. It has incredible community support, but it's just technically mature enough. It has got regulatory clarity, but only in the last couple, only, only in the last few years. And, um, it, and it is definitely um, strong from, a, from being its focus being a store of value. But on a technical maturity, it is, it, it is one of the most mature systems out there, but it's still, you know, 
uh, at beta software level. It's not yet ready for being world reserve currency. And, and that's what some of the most incredible developers I've met. And I've, I've worked with hundreds of developers because I was a prior to this, I was a CTO for 15 years of a number of very successful uh, multinational UK and European based um, startups. And so um, I, and that some of them sold for billions of, of dollars. So very big, hundreds of people working with me around the world um, for, um, and from Australia to India to, to Europe. And I've worked with hundreds of developers and some of the best developers I've ever interacted with are working on Bitcoin core. And they're humble, um, they're mild-mannered, they are pragmatic, um, and, that, and, and they are working to resolve the sort of the last 1% of issues that need to be dealt with um, behind the scenes to make this absolutely as strong as it uh, uh, theoretically can be. And so with all of those things considered, Bitcoin is really the only option if you are being objective. Now, other exchanges have say they have criteria and they list them in general levels, but they never go into the details to say, well, why did you list this thing? Because it seems to fail against your own criteria. So they, they're always, they tend to be quite vague about their criteria because from our point of view, if you had any objective criteria that you consistently used for currencies um, that was thinking about your customers and their interests, you would only list Bitcoin. So, so you cannot publish your criteria because it, it, wouldn't, it would lead to you either having inconsistencies or it would be um, one criteria is how much money can we make from our customers from it. That, that would be a real criteria, but you don't want to communicate that criteria. Because, but if you have a customer-led set of criteria, then you could only list Bitcoin. I, 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 um, or you would say that technical maturity is not important, or for example, because then you would, why are you listing Ethereum? Or you would say that um, store of value is not important. Well, then um, or is important. If it's not important, or if it is important, why are you listing Bitcoin Cash when it forked with Bitcoin and over the last three or four years, it's lost in value a huge amount against Bitcoin, i.e. it's not behaving like a store of value. It's losing value compared to Bitcoin. So you have to delist Bitcoin Cash for that reason, for example. Um, so objectively, I can't, if you're thinking about your customer, you, you can only list Bitcoin. And that's why we list Bitcoin. So it's not that I'm, I am a Bitcoin maximalist, but I'm a Bitcoin maximalist because I'm a common sense maximalist. And if you're a common sense maximalist or you're a pragmatism maximalist, then, um, then you can only end up listing Bitcoin. I think you just explained Coinbase uh, being disingenuous with uh, all their coins and at least with other exchanges, they're kind of honest about it. But um, I, I think you make a really good point because we're not hating on Ethereum um, just for the sake of it. It is kind of like saying, well, you know, we tried our best with version one. It wasn't really good enough. We're just going to go to version two. And it's not, it's not an iPhone app. It's not an Android app that you've got a bug in it. Oh, well, we'll put a patch out and we'll, you know, put out a new version sort of thing. This is money. We're talking billions of dollars. And it's not that I'm against all these other altcoins. It's just that I'm against all other altcoins that pretend to be money. And the fact is 99.99% of altcoins pretend to be money. And the others that don't, utility tokens, like you don't need a blockchain for that. Just, you know, use a database. So anyway, that's my, and, and here's my, that's here's, my rant. Here's my thing to, to just be fair here. Um, what, what we do, and I do it a lot, and, and people do it against me as well. So I'm trying to, 
see the other side is um, Ethereum community is a broad church and Bitcoin is a broad church. Um, so when we say that there are a large number of people, and maybe it's probably the, the majority of Ethereum users who see Ethereum as just the gas, the fuel for their smart contracts, and they see it as an experiment, and they are, and they are, and they do communicate the risks um, related to it, um, and 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 they realize that culturally it's about you know move fast and break things, and and if you do lose money, hey. We're, we're all going eyes wide open. And so it's just like going to the casino. Um, if I, I'm going there and I go with a certain amount of money in my pocket, and if I'm happy to lose it and I have a great time and a lot of fun, it's, it's fine. And I, and, I, and I don't know, but it, it could very well be the vast majority of people in Ethereum are like that. There's just this vocal minority who you see on um, Ethereum Twitter, say, or crypto Twitter, who may give this impression um, that they they see it in a different way, or they or they may be on YouTube educating people um, with their channels around investing this token or that token, because they can know that they they can earn a lot of money from um, from views or or, or um, revenue from from a, from YouTube, and so and they and they say selling the next the next big thing um, earns money, and so. That gives uh, that taints the impression of a, of a community that's trying to just experiment. Um, maybe I don't agree necessarily with the way they're experimenting, where maybe the token's not needed, but that doesn't really matter if they're going in eyes wide open and they want to experiment that way. That's fine. And I think there are a lot of people who are just promoting Bitcoin purely to make money from it for themselves, not trying to think about the higher level philosophy behind. Um, the challenges we see in the world today with with rampant brewer money printing and 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 massive centralization of power in a few hands, and they realize that bitcoin is is part of the solution to resolving that again, I think a large majority of people i 'd like to believe have that sort of more holistic view um, and but there is a few people who are taking advantage of that, and they sometimes confuse people with things like Bitconnect and these others these other sort of Ponzi schemes using the brand of Bitcoin to confuse people to take money from people as well. But again, sometimes someone looking in may brand everybody in Bitcoin as, as, as um, just trying to pump for their own, for themselves and not thinking about the philosophy. Because when you look on YouTube or whatever, you see a few people just trying to sell and do nothing else. So I, I, I've, I've, I want to, um, a lot of the time I make a tweet and it's very short, and, I'm, and, I, and I want to have a disclaimer. This is referring to the subset of Ethereum users who are, who are operating in, in that sort of disingenuous way. And if you honestly are trying to do something to better the world, you know, we'll all take different paths towards that task and, and good luck to you. It, it's the ones who are trying to confuse um, that um, and befuddle the minds you know, of, 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 of men and women around the world that, that we have to take aim at. And I think that that's the same for both of you. Whenever you're talking about this, you're referring to that subset. And I think most people in the, in the Bitcoin space are as well. No, absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, so if someone is listening to this, they've got a UK bank account. Um, they want to hedge against inflation. They want to store a value. So we're talking about Bitcoin. Uh, how do yeah. they get started with, uh, with CoinFloor? Yeah, it's, it's really easy. They, I mean, they go to CoinFloor, 
www.cloudcoder.co.uk and you sign up. The sign up process is effectively not much more than email, password, name, um, postcode, and date of birth, a, a nationality, and then you could be you're, you're in. Uh, there's there's some checks we do automatically, but in in the vast majority of cases you're in. So we've timed it. You can do it if you're a fast typer in in literally under two minutes. It can be it can it can get that fast, but um, definitely under three or four if you're going you're typing reasonably fast, and and you're in. And then we provide you a number of um, of of details, and you can go into your own banking app. Because we think our viewers, at least initially, why give you yet another app? You know, mm-hmm. and you can set up a standing order, or you can do one-off buys as well, one-off auto buys, or you can set up a standing order, a regular payment from your own banking app that you're comfortable with, that you're used to, and you control, so you can cancel it at any time. And once that's set up, you you're done. You from then on don't actually even need to. You can buy Bitcoin without even logging in, without lifting a finger. And every and there was a tweet just uh, yesterday from a, a customer, um, Statsaka, uh, um, on on Twitter, and I I just liked the the comment. But he showed he showed obviously or she I don't know actually because it's an anonymous it's a pseudonymous, pseudonymous character their um, their email they received. So every time a, an autobuy happens, you receive an email saying congratulations, you've just um, got more Bitcoin, or, um, and you've you've, and it says the amount that you've received, how much you spent, and how much is your new total. So, and we're looking to embellish these emails more, but that's it. You're in. You you can um, sit back and read the emails when they come in. You can log into the account to see the status and so on. But fundamentally, and and we really wish people come back and and um, read the educational um, material we have. And we always have this ongoing educational material, not just from us. We've got some of our own customers and their journey, so and their educational journey that they they also um, um, send posts um, to our that we we share amongst our customers. So some of the things that other customers who are learning about Bitcoin have discovered this week or this month, um, etc. So that effectively everybody can educate each other. So other than reading emails that are educational about from your customers or seeing how many new stats you've got, you actually never need to log back in the site again. You, you can, it's, it's, it's the, and we were just thinking, how can we get it as easy as possible? If you, often when you have a mobile app, people are, are, are selling these mobile apps to entice you to do more stuff, to trade and spend. Um, if you want to trade, you should, but we're trying to make it as easy as possible. And that's it. I, I really appreciate that. And it sounds like I'm sucking up, but that's actually two things I really love about CoinFall. <laughs> One is you don't force people to log in and check their account and, oh, look at the price of this. I'll, I'll do some trades or whatever, because let's be honest, that's how exchanges make money. But secondly, um, even though I'm not a UK citizen, I just went through the process of signing up and you force people after the verification link to set up 2FA. And so on this podcast, we're all about InfoSec, um, OPSEC, and it's like, that's fantastic. You're actually, you know, basically forcing, hey, you can't use this unless you've got a YubiKey or whatever 2FA. So that's-, that's Yeah, it. and we give you two options. YubiKey, YubiKey we, for most people, the SMS approach, we try to balance because a lot of people, we were finding that some of the more advanced options were just too complex for them. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and again, it was, it was surprising when you would observe people trying to go through the sign-up process. It was just, it was a technical wall. Um, so we've got a very, very simple option that people are comfortable with. And we looked at what people like Facebook and Google and do, do for their TFA as well for best practice on this. And we also have more, we have a mobile app version that you can use and we have um, a physical key version for the people who are more advanced, et cetera. And, but yeah, we do mandate that on sign up while still trying to make it simple and quick. Obi, one thing I'm kind of just realizing is we went straight into a conversation when we started this podcast, never gave you an opportunity to properly introduce yourself. So I might <laughs> do that now if that's okay. So uh, who is Obi Nwosu and why CoinFloor? Okay, well, Obi, I'm a Jedi Knight by the name Obi, so it's, uh, that's it basically, no. Um, uh, well, I, I may be, but I, but I have to, um, I'll deny that if, um, if asked again. So yeah, my name's Obi Nwosu and I'm the CEO and co-founder of CoinFloor. And CoinFloor is the UK's longest running Bitcoin exchange. So we were founded in 2013 and, and we have been around since, well, seven years now. Um, and not only are the UK's longest running exchange, we're the, we have the longest, we're the longest running exchange to do something we call Bitcoin audits, which are proofs of reserves. And, and these are cryptographic proofs using the Bitcoin blockchain um, that to, to prove on a monthly basis that we are solvent, that we are holding our customers Bitcoin. Uh, and this is important, and I think it's going to become increasingly important over the years that you prove that you are solvent, because we've seen a lot of problems with exchanges in the past not being solvent. And for all we know, there might be still a number of exchanges today that are not solvent and are, and are operating um, for months on end. Now, as background, my background is I'm, I'm a card-carrying geek. So... Um, I studied computer science and cognitive science in the 90s, in the early 90s, um, in, in, um, in the, um, London, University of London. And I have worked in the internet and dot-com industry, and I've seen dot-com one, two, and three. I've been lucky enough to work in all those three phases. So in dot-com one, I worked for a company um, called QXL, which was the European equivalent of eBay. It was an online auction company. Um, and it ended up selling for two billion. And I was employee number three and saw it grow in 18 months from three people to 400 people. I, had, I was just out of university and I, you know, within a year I had 100 people working for me in just technology. Um, so made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot of stuff about building scalable systems, handling millions of customers, thousands of transactions, etc large amounts of money being being bid, you know, effectively these markets are people bidding and, and bidding against each other, etc. Um, I've worked for companies like Autonomy, I worked for a company called um, ebookers.com as well, which owns, a, which, which, which was part of Sendon Group, so Avis Cars, um, Travel Bag, um, Bridge the World, and ebookers, they're all part of this, this one group. Um, and um, big, big travel company. Um, I also, the last job I worked for other people, not myself, um, which was relevant as well, was a company called WeWorld. And it was a massively multiplayer online um, role-playing game. And 
um, I was the CTO and VP of engineering and chief architect there. And we built something called WeWorld, um, where we had 30 million users in this world who could create their own rooms, interact in different spaces, talk to each other. It was, it was a two-dimensional virtual world, but it was a, it was a, it was a massive, most paid world. And uh, we created our own currency, in fact. And this was before Bitcoin launched. Um, and um, it was called quite um, innovatively WePoint. And, um, and uh, that was used by the WeMe's, which were the characters um, for, for, for WeWorld. And that was really interesting because at that point, and we would have very strong relationships with other people in the, in the sort of MMRPG space at the time. So we were talking to people at Habbo Hotel and Club Penguin and Second Life and all these people at, around that time. And we were all sort of scratching our heads away. This currency that was a digital currency that could only be used within our own respective worlds, going to be transported and was just created by ourselves. But people were willing to work 20, 30, 40, 50 hours a week doing stuff in the world to earn, earn these points to, in order to buy digital goods to decorate their digital rooms that also are in this world. And so, i.e., they were attributing value to this currency that we just created from Internet. And people were literally trying, we were trying to figure out how it happened. But then, if you, then at that time, not being so educated about that's exactly how pounds and dollars work, and everybody attributes value to it already. Um, it was still, it, was, it, it took a lot for us to get used to. But we could see it happening, and, and, and we, were build, we were generating very strong revenues from this. I then uh, went to work for myself, and for the last over 10 years now, I've been an entrepreneur. I sold my first company, and then my second company did well for a while, but I lost a lot of money on it in the end as well. Um, and I, made, I, I learned a lot from that, and then I went into, onto um, CoinFloor. But in 2011, while working on my previous company, um, a friend of mine, if he knew I was always interested in these new ideas, et cetera, and a different way of living, more decentralization, et cetera, um, pointed me in the direction of Bitcoin. And I started looking at it for a really solid three months. Um, I was working on my business, but in the background, I looked at it and I bought a few to test, but that was when they were like, you know, a few pounds each. Um, but what was really interesting to me and was and what i got immediately was this is exactly like we points but now unbounded anybody can use mm. it anywhere and it wasn't controlled by any party but i could i didn't need to um be sold on can people value a digital good um, a, a digital um currency because i i saw it i saw it every day with we points which was obviously in completely inferior to something like Bitcoin because it was controlled by us. We could print any amount we wanted to whenever we wanted. And, and it was only limited where it could be used. So, so I got that immediately, but it took me a, another four, five, six years to really understand that the profound impact of Bitcoin was um, the philosophy that came along with it. And that was growing within the community. And so the strength of Bitcoin is tied to the strength for the philosophy of the community. So I like to say, you know, I came to, I came to Bitcoin um, because of the technology. So proof of work and um, 
proof of work and um, public private key encryption, et cetera, blockchain, et cetera. I, I invested in Bitcoin because of the economy. So fixed supply, um, um, 21 million cap, et cetera. Um, I stayed in Bitcoin and not others because of the philosophy. And that's be your own bank, don't trust verify and so on. And then now I say I educate about Bitcoin to protect its philosophy, economy, technology, and my BTC. <laughs> so, and that's, 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 that's Sorry, me. go ahead. That's, that's me. Um, that's something we strongly relate to because yeah, I remember exactly when Gordon told me about Bitcoin. I think it was about 2013. And I equated it at the time to just digital funny money like Second Life. So I was going to ask you, you being an insider and seeing the difference between these online gaming currencies that can only live in that sphere. Mm. Um, with someone who was not tech savvy, do you think that these online currencies have actually benefited or been detrimental to people's intellectual understanding of Bitcoin? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I suppose I can't know, but uh, I, but I can't know for sure, but my gut is it depends on who you are. If you're someone who's a gamer and been in that world and spent time in World of Warcraft or, you know, killing, you know, or a bit like Sword Online, off in the wilderness, sort of killing like boars, you know, to get a few little amounts of, a tiny amount of coin at a time, building up, working really hard in terms of time, in player time, to effectively to earn currency um, or fight or whatever, and, and you put, you've invested a lot of your time to generate this money, then you understand that these things are value. And the reason they have value is because other gamers believe they have value. So, so for you, if you're an insider to the gaming world, I think it'll be easier for you to understand, which is why, for example, MT Gox, which was one of the first exchanges, um, which eventually failed, but it was originally, it came from the gaming community. MT, Mount Gox or MT Gox actually was an acronym for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, where Magic the Gathering was a, was a popular exchange. And then they... And then they abbreviated to MTGOX, and then people said they're like Mount Gox, like, and and then that became that that, that became a, a corruption of of Magic the Gathering online exchange, and and there was a lot of gamers who uh, there was a high sort of overlap between gamers and early Bitcoiners who or people who found out about it and understood it. But if you were an outside to gaming, then just like people who are outside, you know, the, the stereotypical, maybe the parent of the, of, the, of the teenager who's gaming all day and they're saying, I can't understand why you're spending all the time on the game. Shouldn't you be outside in the, in the sun and, and chilling and so on? That same person will probably not understand why they would put value into a digital asset. So if you're, but if you're, if you're, so as I say, if you're outside the gaming world, it might make it harder for you to understand. And you might discount it in the same way you discount gaming. But if you're inside the gaming world, then it, it immediately you will intuitively understand why this is what you've already spent 40 hours a week for the last four years working to generate value on. And this thing, though, I can, I, people value it not just in World of Warcraft or Second Life, um, Linden, you know, Linden dollars or so on, but they value it in any other game and they'll value it for me. I can buy cars and houses with this stuff as well. But I can still, 
is still digital, and I can take I can take digital actions and and earn earn this currency. So, luckily, the number of gamers in the world is increasing. And again, if you extrapolate, everybody's going to be a gamer. Gaming is 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 on its way to become the dominant form of entertainment worldwide. The ability to be everybody wanted to be in the movie, to be Indiana Jones, to be Luke Skywalker. That was when I was a kid, I, that's what I wanted. Now with VR and so on, we're not quite there, but that's where we're heading. And that's where everybody wants to head to. And at that point, everybody's a gamer. And at this point, everybody will understand the idea of digital money. Well, it's funny, we're living in a world now where an epidemic has not changed a gamer's lifestyle whatsoever. No, <laughs> it's just increased <laughs> the number of people who've become gamers and increased the number of people's, uh, we're, we're already, I mean, for, for all you know, this, I could be a deep fake and I'm actually a, you know, a 12 year old girl in Botswana, you know, or, or Kathmandu. I mean, unlikely I have access to the internet and all this sort of stuff, but you know, I, there, there is voice deep faking, there is face deep fake and accent deep faking and, and face deep faking. How do you know I'm not, I'm not a deep fake right now and I'm not actually digitally generated. You can't know that. You, you're just having to trust that. Yeah. If um, you wanted to get oh, philosophical, OBS. you could say that life is a game, but uh, that's for another podcast. Yeah, that's podcast too. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think parents who spend $50 on their, their, their son or daughter's V-Bucks, and uh, they may think it's insane, but I think they do sort of slowly understand. Uh, yeah, that's true as well. Yeah, because we had to obviously... With WeWorld, the, the customer base were under 18. It was focused on sort of the 13 to 18 year age. So parents were the ones who had to actually buy the Wii points for them. So they, they probably could see, okay, they're valuing it. So I have to value it. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I could talk to you forever from um, the gaming perspective because I was huge into World of Warcraft. But uh, we've already taken up almost an hour and a half of your time. And by the way, I'll edit this at the front of the podcast because it's embarrassing that we didn't ask this first. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that you want to conclude with or anything we've missed or anything uh, you want to say? Sorry, just Toby, let, us, let our audience know where they can follow your work. Okay, well, you can come to our website and, and there's three places. A website, which is coinfloor, C-O-I-N-F-L-O-O-R.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my, I'm Obi, O-B-I on Twitter. And um, you can also, I've recently started a column in BTC Times, um, The Road to Bitcoin Hegemony, where I just review the last week, spend you know, a weekend thinking about it and, and just put my thoughts on some of, the, some of the interesting stories, why they're interesting, and maybe an, and some uh, uncommon insights into how that's leading us towards I'm tracking the process towards Bitcoin hegemony becoming the new um, currency hegemony in the world instead of US hege USD hegemony. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Obi. It's been such a pleasure for us. Really enjoyed this very much. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Great. Absolutely appreciate it. Thank you very much, Obi. Great to talk to another educator as well. Keep the good up. Keep up the good work. Let's do this. All Jedi, Bitcoin Jedi together. <laughs> <laughs> I think your Twitter account is probably worth a million dollars by now, if not more. I don't know. People have asked me about it. Um, I suppose uh, my, my other Twitter accounts, like um, like um, 
banking and um, and money might be worth more. Not really. I don't know those two. <laughs> I don't know those two. I'm joking. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you, when it was early on, you know, um, you just didn't think. I mean, I think I remember in early days with domain names and you can just search and things like um, steel were available and so on. But fortunately, I didn't make the sort of, I was only in my, um, at that point, I was, you know, 19, 20, and I wasn't thinking about, hmm, maybe I should um, buy some of these names. <laughs> but anyway. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear, yes. All right. Um, thanks again, Obi. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll link all your um, articles and Twitter and, and, and CoinFor, obviously, in the description of the show notes. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, thanks again. No problem, Macy's. Guys, it was Cheers. always a Thank you, Obi. Thank you. Thanks for watching or listening. Please visit coincompass.com slash free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking, and following helps this content remain ad-free. Until next time.